0: Welcome to the JMD podcast, the companion podcast to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease, the official journal of the SSIEM. In fortnightly installments, we bring you insights from experts in the IMD field discussing everything from screening through diagnostics and the latest updates on therapies. With over 100 episodes, our extensive back catalogue should definitely have something to tickle your fancy. But for now, settle in to hear how to proceed after a negative exome. Hello there. Now, as the journal social media editor, I try not to have favorites when it comes to the papers that the journal publishes, but I do see what's popular online and the paper under discussion today has been a solid hit from day one. And I don't think that's a surprise. I think all of us have found ourselves in the position of having sent away the tests and come up empty. And so when my guest today penned the paper, how to proceed after a negative exome, a review on genetic diagnostics, limitations, challenges, in emerging new multi-omics techniques, I think it really helps a lot of us reframe our thoughts on some tricky cases. It therefore gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mathilde Oud of Radboud University Medical Center, Dr. Saskia Wartman who manages to work for both Radboud UMC and the University Children's Hospital Salzburg in Austria, and Dr. Clara van Karnbeek from Amsterdam UMC, and all three are members of the group United for Metabolic Diseases. Saskia, welcome back and Mathilde and Clara, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, James.
0: So we're talking today about what to do after a negative exome. I mean, I don't want to appear stupid, but the answer isn't going to be do a genome, is it?
2: So indeed, that's actually a very logical thought. And if only it were that simple. We've been doing genome sequencing for a while now and with as many others in the field. However, the major diagnostic increase that we saw with the introduction of exome sequencing has not been seen with genome sequencing. So yes, we do find coding and non-coding variants that cause disease. And genome sequencing data definitely makes it easier to study certain variants, for instance, structural variants. But thus far, the additional diagnostic value of genome sequencing itself has not surpassed the 10%. So it's not that simple.
0: Well, that's a relief. It would have been a really short episode. So obviously, the focus here is diagnosis. And we know that for many patients, the diagnosis may prove elusive. but. surely they're already receiving supportive management. This might seem naive, but why is a formal molecular diagnosis so important?
1: I think you might have said it yourself. I don't think that patients without a diagnosis receive appropriate treatment or management. And that's because a formal molecular or precise molecular diagnosis is essential for several reasons. First of all, an answer, a definitive answer For the family, for the patient, often there's a long, as we call it, diagnostic odyssey. Second is that genetic counseling on recurrence risk in future children, but also identifying family members at risk, can be done much more precisely and comprehensively once we know the diagnosis. And to say something about what the future of the child or the adult Uh, With the diagnosis looks like, it's really important to know exactly what the underlying cause is. And I would say, finally, and maybe most importantly, the care that the patient receives. So ideally, finding a treatment, uh, a causal treatment, which we can provide to the patient, whether it's a, a medication, a diet, a supplement, or now on the horizon, molecular therapies or even an organ transplant. That's only something that we can do once we know the diagnosis. And preventive measures, even if we cannot treat and modifying, let's say, supportive treatment is also possible with the diagnosis. So I hope I've convinced you that uh, understanding the underlying cause at the molecular level is very important. I think to put it very briefly, without a diagnosis, no
3: therapy, and without a diagnosis, you cannot understand the underlying pattern mechanism of disease. So I think everybody needs a diagnosis, a proper genetic diagnosis.
0: It's okay, I'm convinced. You're definitely preaching to the choir. So we know that the diagnosis is valuable, and the arrival of exome sequencing has been a revolution when it comes to shortening pathways and expanding our diagnostic options. I'm a simple general paediatrician, If I ask for an exome, what am I actually getting?
3: I think this is exactly the question you need to ask your lab and you need to be aware of what you are getting when you are asking an exome. Which kind of analysis do they do? Do they look at copy number variations? Is the mitochondrial DNA included or not? So I think it's very important to have this exchange with your lab and to know what can I expect from an exome and what are perhaps things uh, I need to do
1: additionally. And Maybe most importantly, what I often see and hear around me is that uh, People expect whole exome sequencing, and we know that this is hardly done unless there's a trio exome available. But even then, let's say focusing on a subset of genes, as we call it, a gene panel, is often done. And so you need to know which genes are in the panel, which are not, and are we going for discovery of potential new human disease genes or just the known ones? So it's the really important question, as Saskia said, to ask.
0: So are you saying that not all exomes are equal?
2: No, definitely not. The quality of of exomes has improved over time. As you can imagine, sequencing techniques keep improving, as well as bioinformatic analysis and also the interpretation that happens after sequencing improves over time. And I think definitely the analysis pipelines, where they keep improving, so the variant colors keep improving, and we can detect more and more variants and recognize the true variant over some noise. And with new algorithms, we can also predict the effect of variants better, the effect of the variant on protein levels. So no, not every exome is the same. And also if you compare a singleton versus a trio exome, there are definitely clear differences there. If you perform trio exome sequencing, where we not only sequence the index patient, but also the parents, it's easier to study different variants, for instance, the novo variants, because you immediately have the allelic origin of the variant. So you can immediately say whether it fits the disease pattern or not. And this reduces the number of variants that we need to uh, interpret.
3: And also, I do not know if it's politically correct to say it, but there's this quoted "it in, and out. So if you do not ask the right questions and if you do not provide really good clinical phenotyping to your lab,
1: they cannot give you a diagnosis. Or potentially the wrong diagnosis. So as Saskia put it, but maybe this is more correct. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> yes, that's a much better. <laughs> but I agree with you on that one. And so that really means that differential diagnosis is still important and that we don't just ask for an exome and hope to get an answer, but that we as clinicians still really need to evaluate our patients. And and it helps to come up with a a potential diagnostic category.
0: Uh, Thank you for the save there, Clara. I think we'll have to put a strong language warning on this podcast. That's certainly a first. But I completely agree. We've been hearing a lot about the quality of data with the emergence of AI technologies, and what you get out is only as good as what you put in. And I think this will only become more important as we start sending genomes on undifferentiated patients. In our genomic newborn screening podcast, David Bick explained that they can overcome this challenge by restricting their output to well-reported variants. But this obviously limits the utility of the data being generated. And the amount of data is is the issue here, isn't it? Because there's this incredible paradox. The exome considers just a tiny fraction of our genomic data, albeit the area where the vast majority of diagnoses will be found. You said earlier that it wasn't as simple as just doing a genome instead. Why isn't whole genome testing the answer?
2: So whole genome sequencing will give us basically the same information as exome sequencing. It will give us all the relevant information about the coding sequence. But additionally, it will give us information about the non-coding sequence. And there are definitely diagnoses in the non-coding region as well. However, we're not that familiar with the non-coding region yet. So there are evolutionary conserved regions, the UTRs, specific promoter enhancer sequences, that will lead us to more diagnoses. But there's also many parts of the non-coding DNA that we just have to elucidate. We just have to figure out further what the importance is of this part of the DNA. So in that respect, yes, we have the information, but we don't know how to interpret it. On the other hand, for the structural variants, genome sequencing will give us much more data. So the more complex variants, the the translocations, the mobile elements, the larger insertions, lesions, it's much easier to study them, detect them with whole genome sequencing than it is with exome sequencing. So yes, genomes will definitely take us further for these variants. And I think it will only improve over time when we have better callers and it makes it easier to interpret all this data. And maybe that also
1: emphasizes the fact or at least the proposition phenotype first, because to find those structural variants, it's not just screening this vast amount of data, you really need a targeted approach. And so there needs to be a clinician or a colleague who says, I think this is the diagnosis. I think
2: this is where you have to be looking. That will make it much easier. Is that not correct? For sure. As um, in my work, I do a lot of exome and genome analysis. And indeed, The better the phenotyping, the better you know what exactly the patient has, the easier it is to rule out variants to say, okay, this is definitely not the case. Or, hey, this could be an interesting variant, an interesting gene. This could be a novel gene looking at the pathway it functions in. So yes, phenotyping is key to finding a diagnosis.
0: These sound like some good reasons why I should be bidding my exome data and going and getting a genome next.
1: James, I think let's say reusing the available data is really the most important step as we advocate it. eh? So the answer is no. When you have a negative exome, don't go for the genome because the data storage issues are huge. That's on the one hand. And there's so much to be found in the existing data. So also in terms of sustainability and thinking about costs, et cetera. It's really important to look at that exome data. Yes, I think always the first step is to do a
3: reanalysis of the data. And I want to come back on this again, the communication with the lab or the one who is doing the exome analysis, that you go again through your phenotype, go again through your data. And this is the first step to
1: get a diagnosis. And then, of course, there are lots of other omics techniques. And the other would be... and. Maybe Machtold can speak more to that, but using the, the gene matcher to find other patients and the mode of inheritance, because I think for me, that is one of the most educational things. So I think that mode of inheritance is also important to speak about, that when you find one variant in the exome in a very promising gene, that there might be reason to look for the second one or to think of different modes of inheritance.
2: Yes, it's very important to really look at the variant itself and try to determine whether this variant is likely pathogenic or not. So we do find variants where we only have one uh, de novo variant. It's very strong, but indeed the gene is already associated with a recessive phenotype. And you would say this does not fit, it can't be the answer. But then if you would make use of... Matchmaking exchange, gene matcher, different platforms where you can reach out to other clinicians, other researchers who may have similar cases, you can find new inheritance patterns. So there are yeah, many examples. We have a list in our paper of, of many different genes that have both dominant and recessive inheritance patterns. So if you're very certain about a certain variant that it could be pathogenic, then don't rule it out. Look further and reach out to fellow clinicians, researchers, to see whether this could be a match and you could have a diagnosis for your patient. Well, and in addition also, new disease genes are being found, well, maybe not every day, but every so often. So indeed, a reanalysis will also lead to a diagnosis if you're one of the new genes.
3: I think what Machvel said about the multiple inheritance models is very important. And we should also keep in mind other genetic mechanisms like uh, mosaicism, which is sometimes difficult to see in uh, exome sequencing. You you really have to be aware that this can be the case, especially in uh, cases with epilepsy. Then you have variable penetrance and expressivity. And never, ever forget that your patients can have multiple diseases. So you can find multiple genetic diseases in one individual. So I think it's it's always keep the unexpected in mind if you look at exome data and
1: discuss it with your lab. One in 20 patients with a rare disease phenotype has two distinct or unrelated genetic disorders. So it's not a remote possibility. It's actually uh, well possible, as you said, Saskia. And I think important also because we, in the past, tended to then say when we found a new clinical feature, or biochemical feature, ah, we are expanding the phenotype of this disease or this syndrome, while actually these were phenotypic features caused by two distinct genetic entities. and And so if we don't understand a certain feature in terms that it doesn't fit what has been described in the literature, I would say word of caution and to kindly ask the colleagues in the lab to go back to the data to to search for uh, a second disorder. So that's the good news, James. We're never done. There's always more work to uh, to do on an exome. That's what makes it fun.
0: Exomes are fun. That's our podcast title right there. <laughs> But the issue of multiple diagnoses is an interesting one. There was an American clinician, John Hickman, who said, a man can have as many diseases as he damn well pleases. And I hope listeners will forgive my accent.
1: (laughs) That's even better.
3: Yeah, and I think, Clara, I, I would like to add one very important point to this podcast. What you describe is, I think, the big, big challenge we are all facing. And this is the challenge of variant interpretation. In an exome, we find in every person, like in you or in me, we find 40,000 variants. And this number goes up when you do a genome. And we need to interpret this variance, which variants are benign and only variants of nature. And which of these variants really cause disease? And I think this is the big challenge. And this challenge is already enormous when you're interpreting variants from exome sequencing and it increases when you look at genome data. So we need the functional testing. It does not stop with the exome. For searching for therapies, we need to know the pattern mechanism, but also very often... Only for proving the diagnosis, we need a functional test and we are lacking far behind that. So uh, for the future, there's, again, metabolic work needed to understand all these disorders and make proper functional tests. And I think this is very important when you ask about the future of metabolic screening. This will be the future duty of our metabolic labs.
1: And once you find a a good, uh, let's say, biomarker, this can serve as well as a potential readout for therapeutic uh, screening studies in stem cells. So going from the diagnosis to the treatment, I think, as you say, the, the metabolic or the functional experiments are really pivotal.
0: I completely agree, Clara. And actually, it's something that seems to be coming up more and more in the podcast. Saskia and I spoke about this not that long ago when she was discussing functional validation of CAD variants when you're trying to work out if they're pathogenic or not. And this... Captures some of the change in our pipeline, our diagnostic workup. Where we've moved away from some of the more invasive investigations, such as muscle and skin biopsies. I was speaking with a clinician colleague of mine just earlier today, and he was saying, Oh, should I be ashamed because the whole genome came back with this diagnosis and, and it wasn't on my radar? But I mean, this is just the way we're working now, isn't it? There's no shame in a candidate gene coming from the whole genome when we haven't necessarily got a strong clinical suspicion.
1: Yeah, I think the reverse phenotyping, because that's what it is, uh, That was also a reality that outrolls a potential diagnosis from the exome or the genome, and that we go back to the patient to see, does it fit? And did I maybe miss it? Or did the phenotype develop and become more apparent over time? I think there absolutely should be no shaming, because... Once again, I, I think establishing a diagnosis too soon or the the wrong diagnosis, the mislabeling of a patient is, is much more detrimental than waiting and being careful until we're sure. So that's also, I think, our new normal.
0: So I think you've already begun to touch on this. The answer to the question set out in your title, what to do after a negative exome, but within the paper itself, and I think one of the reasons why it's so popular is you presented this sort of flowchart of uh, how a clinician might proceed. I mean, perhaps you could just take me through it. You know, what should I do when one of my patients' genetic tests come back negative?
3: Yeah, I think you should take our checklist and start with the box on the left. And prepare yourself and prepare your patient and have ready a very good deep phenotyping and the family history. And then discuss the results again with the lab and ask the right questions. Did you look at the empty DNA? Did you look at CNVs? Did you look for all possible uh, modes of inheritance? And did you use the newest databases? For example, there's a new version of the exact database. And I think it's very important to look at your data with this updated databases. And then Machtold already provided some information about genome sequencing. But I personally think that the best additional omics method at a genetic level is to do RNA sequencing or transcriptomics, because this is the only technique that not only gives you a variant, but also can inform you about the expression of the gene. So it's another level that is added to a
1: pure DNA diagnostic test. Uh, I fully agree with what Saskia says, and especially for the the listeners or the readership of this journal. What's the um, place or the importance of metabolomics or metabolic testing these days? And I think metabolic testing and phenotyping really remains a pillar of the diagnostic workup. On the one hand, we regard it as part, as I said, of the phenotyping, of characterizing the patient. We have to keep in mind that metabolic tests have a much faster turnaround than exome sequencing. And so, especially for diseases which require an intervention or have a treatment available, uh, metabolic testing still really has an important place in the workup. And on the other hand, we can think of metabolomics as... Functional testing, is alongside the uh, whole exome or the or the whole genome, so that's I think that's more the right column of our box. But aside from RNA seq, I think metabolomics also still has an important uh, place.
0: And do we just keep going around and around? Is there a friend I can phone?
1: I think we should also ask the the patient and this is a serious note because sometimes we, as clinicians, are are so intent on finding a diagnosis because we know there must be a monogenic disease underlying the phenotype, and we understand the importance of a diagnosis. At the same time, sometimes the parents or the patients or both think, you know, what we want a time out because it's such an intensive process. We need some time to just think only about our current situation, etc. So that would be my note of caution, that we really listen to the the patients and families when we pursue a diagnosis.
0: I think that's such an important note to end on. Ultimately, the patient and their families are the ones in the middle of all this and the reason why we're doing everything that we do. I'd like to thank you. I'm so grateful that you've made the time to go through this work. We live in this incredible transformational period of diagnostics, but it's a lot to keep up with and it's so important to understand what we can do, what we're actually getting and, and what else needs to be done and learned, I guess. I would urge our listeners to check out this fantastic paper and that incredible checklist of yours, either via the link in the podcast description or by searching for how to proceed after a negative exome. Clara, Machteld and Saskia, thank you again for your time today.
1: Thank you, James. Thanks so much. Thanks.
0: And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.